This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Oakshade Podcast with me, Dan the Fitness Man, your host, Welcome to season five. Here we go. This podcast is brought to you by discipline, delayed gratification, and being accountable to yourself. This podcast is about finding the high road, working hard every day, creating the best possible version of yourself. Our values are faith, family, fitness, finances, elk hunting, and career. Our guiding principles are authenticity, transparency, and out hustling the competition. Our podcast is brought to you by Buck Knives, Onyx Hunt, Vortex Optics, Wilderness Athlete, Black Rifle Coffee Company, Crispy USA, Matthews Archery, Kufaru International, and BlackOvis.com. Hey friends, welcome to the Oak Shape Podcast with your host Dan the Fitness Man. We're brought to you by Buck Knives USA and Numa Outdoors. So today we're sitting down with Brian Rimza. Uh, he is in law enforcement, but he's honestly one of the best elk hunters, just best bow hunters that I know of, and he's been doing it for a long time. Super excited to have him on. He is a resident of Arizona, but he's hunted all over the lower 48, including Northwest Territories. The guy's been hunting for decades and he's a wealth of knowledge. I learned a lot on this podcast, even about Arizona. He had some really good insight. We talk about uh, tag allocation, um, places he's put in, hunting strategies, and most importantly, locating elk, including some tactics that are specific to Arizona for locating elk that I think you might find pretty handy if you find yourself with an Arizona elk tag one day, which I certainly hope for your sake. Uh, great listen. Brian's a solid dude. We've had him on the Elk Collective. Uh, we've done videos with him there. If you don't know about the Elk Collective, I'll tell you more about it at the end of the podcast. But So this is Brian Rimza out of Arizona. This is the Elk Shape Podcast you're listening to, and I hope you enjoy. What's up, Brian Rimza? What's up, man? How are you? Uh, this is I've, I feel lucky I get to talk to you twice in like a 10-day span. Hey, that feeling is mutual, man. I'm excited to uh, be able to talk to you and uh, see what we can come up with here. We're going to dig in on elk hunting for sure. You are, I don't think you're well known and maybe you try to keep it that way, but I know you are one of the most successful, dedicated bow hunters. And that's why I want to bring you on today, man. I want to pick your brain. You seem to be a kind of guy that maybe flies under the radar on purpose, but we'll get into all that. You are in law enforcement. I am. Yeah. How many years you been in? 18 and a half. Is it going to be done at 20 or are you going to continue on? Uh, no, I mean, I hope to continue on, man. I, I really love my job. I mean, obviously we had some struggles in the last couple of years and, uh, but, uh, I like the people that I work with. I like the community. So, I mean, I'd like to stay there and, uh, I'm a pretty young guy, so it'd be hard to, hard to walk away at 20. I mean, I'd only be 43. So, I mean, got some time left in me. So, uh, I think I'll stick around, man. I really enjoy the job. So. 
Are you a state, county? Are you sheriff, city? City of Phoenix. Okay, damn. That's your city's blown up. I lived there for about a year in 2005, and uh, I don't even recognize it anymore, man. It's so expansive. It's huge. It is big, man. It is big for sure. Okay, so besides, so what's your schedule like as a law as a Leo, man? Like, are you? Uh, like really ridiculous four or five days and then you get a few days off. How does it work? No, I mean, I work four tens. So I work Tuesday through Friday and uh, I'm a Lieutenant at this point. So like, you know, I've got five squads under me and I've got some specialty squads under me and some training squads and things like that. So, I mean, my schedule is busy, um, but it's not, you know, it's not out of control. It's manageable. I mean, right now we're obviously dealing with staffing struggles around. So, I mean, that, that's kind of the biggest struggle we deal with, but, uh, and, you know, just trying to get people to kind of join the department and, uh, want to continue on the tradition of uh, law enforcement and, you know, taking care of the community. It's just a, a hard time right now. Cause in general, you know, people, everyone's looking for good bodies that are willing to work. And I mean, it's just hard to find them. And so, um, you know, hopefully we can move past that, you know, the pendulum swings both directions and, uh, you know, we'll get it swinging back the right direction. Cause I mean, we got to have law enforcement. We got to have people that are, you know, holding people accountable for sure. You know, I got some young guns that listen to this podcast as well. So civil servant job, I imagine, um, similar to when I was a firefighter, like you got to go take a test just to get your foot in the door. It's probably nothing to do with law enforcement, like very basic type test and personality type test. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, you have a written test and a physical fitness test. I mean, both of those are not geared uh, the, the, the written test is geared at a 12th grade level, you know, it's cognitive ability. And then your, your physical fitness test is nothing uh, crazy for someone who, you know, at least maintains some form or level of fitness and health. And, uh, you know, the, the good thing about the job is four tens and, uh, the retirement. And I mean, the salary is pretty good and, it, you know, you have some ability to do some flexible things and, enjoy what you like to do. I mean, I have a wildlife biology degree from university of Arizona. I worked for game and fish when I was in college. And I mean, I truly like the outdoors. I like wildlife. Um, but unfortunately those guys are not, uh, as well taken care of as they should be in the profession that they choose to live. And you got to kind of live in remote areas and things of that nature. And I'm really pleased with the career path that I've chosen, especially that I was fortunate to start at such a young age and have the ability to, basically have a second career if I want to, if I choose to have, to have that second career, I have that ability for sure. Okay. Guys listening, man, it's, it's a great rewarding job. Uh, it's super underappreciated in my lens, but we need law enforcement. They keep the streets safe. Um, they put their lives out there. They deal with a bunch of bullshit and you know, it's not for everybody, but, uh, what a rewarding career. So, um, and Phoenix is a great place to live and the weather, is pretty exciting most of the year, except for the summer, obviously. But uh, let's get into bow hunting. When did you pick up a bow? Yeah, so the first time, uh, you know, I was fortunate to have a dad that bow hunted. Um, my grandpa hunted some, but not not bow. He didn't bow hunt, and my dad and his brothers really kind of took that to the next level. And so I had a bow in my hand at a super young age, probably five, six years old you know, um, going to archery tournaments back when they were real popular. I mean, it's kind of been nice to see that. I think we've seen kind of a rekindling of the archery tournament focus and not so much on the competitive aspect of it, but just the, in general, having fun, you know, I haven't made it to any of those big shoots in, in Utah yet or anything like that, where you're taking the ski lifts up and the, just the long distance shoots and things like that. But I, I look forward to doing that at some point in time, but, you know, I grew up as a kid going to archery tournaments at a, all the time with my dad. My dad was pretty competitive. He was pretty darn good at it. And so, I mean, that's kind of where it, where it all started. Um, I was fortunate, you know, in, in Arizona in the eighties and nineties, I was born in 1980. So in the nineties, when I first was able to hunt, you know, it was fairly easy to get tags, you know, and, and I got in the bonus point era, you know, when it started. So like I had max points for sheep and max points for animals, um, from the get go, because my dad, you know, got me involved. And so my first successful bow hunt was, you know, was an elk hunt at 12, you know, and for me, my dad had it figured out. And what he had figured out is that if he can put me in a tree stand, you know, it's pretty hard to miss a 55 gallon drum at 10 yards, 12 yards and elk never look up like they don't look up in a tree stand. So, I mean, 
I can be a loud little kid. And, uh, you know, they just really didn't pay a whole lot of attention to us in Arizona. And so, I mean, I was able to, to shoot a lot of elk in those first, in those early years, you know, back when I didn't care about size and I was just out to fill a tag, you know, we had some, I miss kind of those hunts where my dad and three, four of his brothers had tags. I had tags. And so, you know, you just, it was always a week to 10 days in the woods where everyone was there. And I mean, setting tree stands, you know, months in advance and, you know, prepping salt licks and things like that, you know, back when we can do all that stuff. And, you know, we never had trail cameras back then. You know, I think the first uh, cameras that we had were basically we would rig up dental floss attached to an old camera. And I mean, when the elk walked by and pulled the string on the dental floss, it would snap pictures of them. I mean, I remember the days of 35 millimeter, you know, cameras hoping to get a picture. And I mean, 90% of the time it didn't work, you know? And so it was just kind of, those were the fun times though, because really when you don't care about size is when you get to learn the most because you're getting the most opportunity, the most stocks, you know, all that stuff going in there. I mean, I killed my first probably seven or eight elk out of a tree stand. And I mean, it was just a ton of fun and I, it taught me patience and that patience has led me to some pretty successful hunts over the years. Um, you can see, that mule deer, the velvet mule deer in the back corner. I mean, that, that was 10 days in a blind waiting for that particular buck to show up after some very, very frustrating days. And, uh, you know, not everybody can do that. And I just know that if they're there and it's dry in Arizona, I know they're eventually going to make a mistake. And so I can capitalize on that. So, I mean, that's kind of where it started for me. 10 days in a solitary confinement, uh, in August in Arizona, dude, that sounds like a death sentence, man. At what age were you when you shot that buck? People can't see it, but it's it's a velvet mule deer that's as good as anything you're ever going to see. Yeah, so I mean that that buck, you know, I shot in 2018, so I was I was older, you know, and uh, but it was a drought year on the strip, and I mean, no, I hadn't seen that buck. I ended up having him on trail camera video, but he just in the video he didn't look nearly as impressive as when I saw him in person. Um, kind of the first year that I really did. Uh, the, kind of the first big deer I killed with my bow is actually a coos deer that you can see. Obviously, the listeners can't see, but I mean, it's a it's it a 110 inch net deer. It was 120 gross, and I mean, it was 14 in the world at the time. And I mean, it was one of those deals. It was kind of the coolest thing for me is that I was up bear hunting, and I walked in to check a tank. And when I walked in to check the tank, that deer and four other bucks were standing there, and just I was like, holy smokes, I got to kill that deer. And so I ended up spending the next two weeks. Um, working on trying to kill that deer. And he finally came in at three o'clock in the afternoon and I uh, managed to, to make a good shot on him and kill him. And I mean, that was kind of the first big coos buck, you know, that I ever killed. It's still my biggest deer to date. And I've killed a slew of deer with a rifle, but I mean, by far the biggest deer I've ever killed is when it comes to coos deer. Yeah. He's handsome. Uh, so what's your secrets for keeping your mind preoccupied or occupied? I should say actually uh, in a blind for 10 days, dark to dark sits, what if you don't have cell service? Um, are you just sitting there reading and, and toweling off the sweat off your forehead? Cause it gets hot in those blinds, man. Yeah. I mean, good books and preparation are key. I mean, you got to have cold drinks and stuff like that. So it just depends on where you're at. I mean, but books, cell phones, you know, in reach is nice because on that strip on, it was really nice to have the in reach to be able to communicate with my wife and my friends who are always, you know, keeping me motivated um, to stay with it. Cause it can get, it, uh, that hunt particularly was a grind because there were some big deer being killed around and I just knew that buck was there and he just hadn't made a mistake. And I mean, I'll, uh, never forget that when, uh, um, on that hunt, particularly Nick Munt was up there actually hunting with some friends of mine and they had killed a big deer the day before I killed that deer. And I was like, Oh man, I hope it's not the same deer. I actually drove over into camp and uh, knocked on Nick's trailer and he answered the trailer and I'll, I'll leave out what he was wearing. Cause it was pretty hot. And, uh, he was super cool dude, man. And he's like, no, we didn't kill that deer. And I'm like, so I, it kind of gave me rejuvenated hope that he was still around, you know, and Nick's a great guy and it was cool to get to meet him. But, uh, you know, that was one that just definitely pushed and grinded me, but you know, good books, you know, um, lots of different games on your phone and stuff like that. Help, help a ton, make you be able to stay long, you know, sit longer and do better. How far was your blind from the water source? Um, on my coos deer, it was, uh, it was like a 28 yard shot, but on that, on that mule deer, it started at 58 yards. But by the time I killed him, the water had succeed, 
subsided down to 63 yards. And so I shot him at 63 yards. Okay. Um, obviously your heart rate probably jumped through the roof. If you've sat that long and hadn't seen what you were looking for, keeping your crap together, 63 yard. Did you dial up a Like, did you have a single pin slider that you just, you know, wanted a beautiful sight picture? Um, tell me a little bit more detail. So I shoot a multi-pin slider. Mm -hmm. Um, that particular setup, I had, I, I didn't have a slider on it. So, I mean, I just held a little high on the, on the shot and, you know, it was low light. So it was kind of tough to figure out what was going on, but I mean, it just, it worked out. Um, I, I did make a good shot that deer kind of did a little Houdini act, but just couldn't get out of the way fast enough. So, uh, it worked out. Okay. Uh, how many cameras were on that water source that year that you set that? Probably six or eight. Really? Okay. Yeah, man. I mean, obviously we'll have to talk a little bit about cameras. I love trail cameras uh, a lot. I I do. I, I love them. But um, this year when I was in Arizona, I knew that they were, this was the last year you could have them. Uh, I knew you couldn't use cellular. Although where I was hunting, there was some really nasty canyons. So I use cell phone trail cameras, but they just take pictures to the card. They don't transmit. Um, but you kind of have to know the rules when you travel and hunt out of state, which you do quite a bit. Um, so 2022 they completely banned them or is it like utah where you can use them to a certain month what's the language i'm always worried about how they write write it out because you know it sucks when the rules are open for interpretation and there's gray area how do they how do they come to this well i mean the game of fish in this particular instance said that you cannot use trail cameras to aid in the take of wildlife so okay. unfortunately to me uh especially with my background yeah, that leaves it very, very open for the purpose of interpretation hmm. because, and, and I think you're going to see guys challenge it this year and it's going to create issues for the game and fish department, which is unfortunate because I think there, there was a better way to achieve kind of a similar goal. Um, but a couple of particular commissioners took this on and it was something that they felt very strongly about. And I don't think anyone was going to change their mind on it. And I think if there had been a little bit better open dialogue, I think there would have been some better outcomes because I haven't used trail cameras um, to kill too many animals, but they're sure fun to run. And it sure gets people out in, in the field, you know, um, in the off season, which in turn generates revenue, generates excitement, creates new hunters, creates, you know, new people getting involved. You know, I get the fact that there are definitely some conflicts at times on water holes, but the conflicts are, I mean, they're really surrounded around water. And I mean, you're still going to have conflicts on the Arizona Strip or in unit nine over water. It's not going to change those conflicts and stuff like that. And uh, so it's just, I think it's going to be very, very difficult uh, as far as enforcement is concerned. I think Game and Fish will enforce it. I, but as far as getting a criminal conviction on a violation of a game law, I don't think there's, they stand a very good chance of doing that. But again, you have to understand that, you know, a revocation of your hunting privileges is a civil process. It doesn't have anything to do with criminal conviction or evidence. So, I mean, the, the, you know, how much they have to go to prove a civil case is a lot different than a criminal case. And I mean, most of us who enjoy hunting don't want to have our licenses taken away for any length of time because that's what we enjoy doing. So, um, I think it's going to be interesting. I, I, I know that there's discussion that there are people that are going to continue to use them. Um, we'll see if that actually, you know, if that's all talk or if it's actual comes to fruition, but I think you're going to see your first trail camera case pretty darn quick. Um, the question also is, is that, you know, the two particular commissioners that were big in this were actually on the built hunt podcast from hunt and fool. And they were asked in that podcast, you know, so if I'm a non-resident like yourself, and I know I have enough points to draw a tag in unit, whatever. Um, can I go run trail cameras the year before I, I'm going to draw my tag, get all that inventory, and then not run the cameras the year that I, that I have the tag? Well, I mean, my question is, is that so if you get a picture of a camera on, of a bull a year earlier and then you kill him a year later, is that still not aiding you in the take of wildlife, even though it's 12 months down the road? I mean, how are they going to look at that? And so I just think it lends itself to some problems. And I mean, the game and fish cases are very, very difficult to win criminally uh, just because of the nature of the situation. There's typically not an independent witness. 
um, evidence is difficult. Sure. You can find a dead deer, but I mean, without a confession or someone, you know, who's actually an eyewitness to what's going on, there's not much that, that you can do to, to prove the case. And so I just think it's going to create a big, a big problem for them. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, it, it's kind of vague. That sucks. Um, I didn't know that they were on that podcast. I didn't know that someone proposed that question. It's very interesting to me. Um, you know, when I, I've hunted Arizona three times for elk and, and all have been, you know, not rut tags. And, and um, my first year out there, I was a little bit like surprised at, to see how many roads were there. Now I know that where I was at, there's just, there's just a lot of roads and there's a lot of water tanks on the road, like off the road to the side. And you would drive by and see a, a four wheeler. And if you slow down a little bit, you could see a ground blind or whatever, and somebody's in there and you just drove by them. So my question is on, you know, Arizona, Southwest areas, what's the etiquette on water holes and not messing somebody else up. And, and like, if there's a brush blind, it seems like everybody builds brush blinds. I hate brush blinds. I like ground blinds. I like to get them enclosed. I like to keep my scent profile as low as possible. I've never understood brush blinds, but again, I'm just a Washington guy asking these questions to you. Like what's the etiquette on water? What's the deal with brush blinds? Well, I mean, I I think that the etiquette is, is that first come first serve is the way it works. I mean, the hard part about that in certain units, you know, within the state is you're, you may see two or three water or blinds on a water hole. I mean, when my wife had a unit nine archery bull tag last year and the particular water hole that we sat had three different, um, ground blinds on it, you know, and that just creates problems, um, because you have more blinds, more scent, something new out of place. And, you know, it's just a difficult situation. I would prefer that guys will just be open. You know, my take is if I got a ground blind on a place and someone beats me to the blind, and even if they're sitting in my blind, I'm just going to say, okay, cool, man. Like, let me know when you're done because I'd rather only have one blind on a water hole, but that creates a lot of tension because guys will be like, well, my blind was here first. Um, or you're in my blind, I'm going to take my blind out. And, you know, I just don't think the calmer heads prevail. And I mean, you know, we had it this year, up in unit nine where we're sitting there, we've been sitting there every single day from dusk to dawn. My, my wife had been sitting, you know, from four 30 in the morning till dark, which is like seven 30 at night in Arizona. And, you know, one afternoon we hear a truck coming in and Mike, it's a one way road. Like there's nowhere else to go. And it's prime time, four 30 in the afternoon. And the truck parks, I get out and, and the guy wants to check his camera. And I'm like, Okay. You know, I mean, what else can I do? I'm not going to get in a fist fight over it, but I mean, really, you're going to come check your camera at four 30 in the afternoon. And I even offered to show the guy all the pictures from my phone and the guy knew me. And so that kind of made it a little more of a, a, an issue. It just, I don't know. Guys just don't, it seems like cooler heads don't always prevail. And, it, and when you start talking about big animals, guys do really, 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 really silly things. Um, just because it's a big animal. I mean, it happens all too often. And I mean, it's a curse. It's a curse and a blessing at the same time. Arizona's got some giant animals. So guys tend to get into more uh, issues with each other um, over certain spots. Mm. So those three years that I hunted Arizona, um, the two seasons uh, that I did go down, never sat water one time, man. Like, honestly, it just seemed like the elk were never getting water during daylight anyways. And from my experience where I was hunting, it seemed like the bulls moved great distances at night. It wasn't like you'd see the same bulls every day. You'd see different bulls as like, oh, they're traveling quite a bit at night. They're they're pretty hip to getting water during the day. And so this year or 2021, it was it was interesting, Brian, because uh, we were having phenomenal morning action and we were getting in awesome like ambush positions on elk with a bow, but. Uh, after four or five days, man, like it was so hot and dry. I was like, we really need an evening play. Like we need to set water evenings. And so we, we sprinkled cameras out everywhere. Like I brought down seven or eight trail cameras and on day four, I just got on my four wheeler and drove, I don't know how many, 50 miles checking all my cameras. And I remember I put a camera on one water source that was just absolutely disgusting, like two inches of green water in a tank, but I couldn't find any water in that area besides that. And I I knew that there was a lot of bulls in there. So I was going to grab that camera, assuming that I was just going to pull it. And I checked the card and I'm like, 
good God, it's elk parade, four o'clock till dark every night, different elk, different bulls. I got to put a blind here. And it's just like what you said. It was a one-way road. And um, I ended up putting a blind in and sitting it, and I ended up killing an elk on that tag over that water. But first sit, guys came up, parked right next to me, and started getting firewood. <laughs> and so I didn't see any elk. Uh, second night, I had, I don't know, 20 different elk come in, three or four different bulls, passed on all of them, 16 yards away, one of the best sits of my life. I just love being close to elk. Third night, two guys roll up in four-wheelers just to check the water tank out at like prime time, 4.30 p.m. Pull your hair out, you know. And they never saw me in my blind. I had it pretty nasty brushed in. I didn't get out and talk to them. I was hoping they wouldn't notice me. They didn't, but I didn't see any elk. And on my last day of the hunt, um, I ended up having a bull show up that I killed. I never had him on camera. I never got pictures of him, ended up killing him. So the trail camera taught me that elk were actually getting this pond water, but it certainly didn't help me kill that particular bull. Um, so I guess all that is to say is like, I didn't really enjoy hunting water in Arizona. It was kind of stressful. You know what I mean? It, it is super stressful. I mean, because the minute you hear the buzz of that truck or the buzz of that buggy coming down, you're, you're just like, man, really, is this guy really going to come in here? And I mean, you, you know, you're just playing those odds. I mean, when I killed that big mule deer, I, the particular spot where the tank was at was at a junction of three roads. So I knew that I was going to have guys coming through and I just had to catch it just right. And that's why on like day 10, you know, most hunters were done and had already left. And so that's when they started to come back to a little bit more of a normal pattern. Um, but you know, you just have to grind it out. And I mean, really when it comes to a big animal, um, you just gotta, you gotta be patient because they will, they will make a mistake. And, uh, but it is the water, the water game's frustrating, man. But I mean, it allows people to be successful who are not mobile and you got to key in on it in Arizona because it, more often than not, um, it'll allow you to be successful. I always tell new bow hunters, especially guys that are elk hunting for the first time. I'm like, look, find a water hole, set up a salt lick. And just, if you sit it for three or four days, you will kill an elk. And I try to tell guys, listen, it's not as much fun, but every elk you see, you can kill. And, and that's the difference is that because not everybody's handy enough to shoot an elk at 35 yards on the ground, but man, it just, it's so much more controlled at 15 or 20 yards. I personally prefer tree stands, um, blinds, you know, I use them when, when you have to, I just like the tree stand, especially for an elk aspect, not for deer and stuff like that. But for elk, I really like the tree stands because it just gets your scent above and it's just kind of a, a unique, um, place to sit. And I grew up doing it. I mean, you know, been killing elk out of a tree stand since I was little. So that's, uh, that's kind of the play on that. But I mean, I think that if more guys wanted to be successful and could be patient, man, if you just sit water, especially in Arizona, you will eventually get a shot. And I always tell guys, you give it three to five days and you usually get a crack at it unless the weather's, um, you know, a lot of moisture, but in Arizona, it only takes three or four days and everything dries back out anyway. Yeah, that's a fact. So did you, um, grow up working on your own bows or is there a pro shop that you end up at, you know, every year when you're work tweaking and making tinks? Yeah. So I never grew up working on my own bows. Um, I'm not as handy as I would like to be working on my own bows. Um, I go to Arizona archery club, which is just down the road. You know, uh, Daniel Willett is the head bow mechanic there and he's a good friend of mine. And I mean, Daniel is the guy that I go to for any questions that I have or any needs that I have. I mean, I would love to have kind of a room like you have there that not everyone can see, but I just don't have that space in my house to do that. And so Daniel has been my go-to for years and, uh, you know, does a good job setting me up and getting me taken care of and making sure I've got everything that I need to, uh, awesome. to be well taken care of. So knowing that you have put down a lot of animals, I'm just going to kind of lean on your experience and ask you questions that I just would love to hear your take. What is your preferred broadhead arrow setup uh for elk specifically so i'm a big fan of uh i, sh I shoot an all carbon uh gold, gold tip pro hunter i've been doing that for years i haven't changed my arrows to the smaller diameter arrows i've always shot kind of the same thing and i'm kind of old school in the aspect of like i don't like to change things that don't you know that, that are not broke I, I try to stick to what works for me um my go-to for a long time, I mean, up until this season, when it comes to, to like an elk 
setup for me was using the grave diggers, um, which Dale Perry created, you know, it's a great broadhead. Obviously he sold it to, I think it's NAP at this point that, yep. that uh, has it. And, you know, I use those for a long time. And when Dale was making them, the tolerances were pretty solid. The tolerances have changed a little bit. It's, I still shoot those uh, grave diggers, but this year on the elk, I went to a, a, a solid uh, fixed head and shot the kudus. Um, and I shot a hundred grain kudu. My wife was shooting the same thing. So it was kind of nice. I like to be able to intermix with her. Um, for a while I had her shooting an 85, 85 grain head and it just made, it was difficult. So we just both shot the kudu points. I was pretty impressed with the way they fly. I'm really impressed with the way they fly. And, um, uh, you know, they did a number on the bull that I killed. Um, so I, the one thing I think is really important to me is I just tend to stick to a fixed blade head or some sort of a hybrid type head when I'm hunting elk. Um, I'm not as picky when I'm hunting deer and things of that nature, but I really like having a broadhead that flies well. Cause I'm not afraid to take some, some longer shots just based on my experience in shooting. And so that, um, that is something that has kind of been important to me is just to stick to a fixed blade head. And, uh, I shoot, you know, luminox lighted knocks. I really like that. It gives you kind of a unique aspect to it, you know, obviously where they're legal. I don't shoot them where they're not legal and stuff like that. And then I shoot uh, a CBE, uh, three pin slider for a site. And typically I have them set at, uh, 20, 30, 40, and then I can, I'll space it out farther and, uh, dial it in. And I, that dial in setup really makes a big, uh, a big difference for kind of shooting longer distances. It's just, it's just more efficient uh, in my opinion. I re- I mean, in a perfect world, the one pin is great. It just doesn't always work when you're talking about animals that are moving consistently back and forth and, and doing different things. So, I mean, that's kind of the setup as far as that's, uh, you know, as that's been concerned. I've been shooting the Bowtech bows now for, I think about this will be my fourth year and I've been really impressed with them. Um, they've been real good to me. And so I'm waiting for my new one to show up and, uh, we'll see what happens when what it comes you to order? that. The SR 350. Okay. Do you, I heard their speeds are pretty fast, but not, I'm not sure if they're, um, matching up to what they advertised. I've seen, I've seen some guys doing some archery memes about them. I don't really care. Um, Bowtech's, been out for a long time i actually oh my dad had a bowtech back in the day um i remember it was like a single cam it was a like a mini mighty i can't remember the name but do you remember that i don't remember that particular bow but it's it's funny when you start talking about the old bows of the days you know what i mean i mean my first bow that i killed my first elk with was a um it was a a Fred bear, like black bear and then i had a Fred bear white tail and i mean just you know shooting actual cables you know just and I, I grew up shooting fingers, so I mean, oh, I didn't you did. A, I didn't pick up a release until I was probably seventeen, and I mean, I probably killed six or seven elk with fingers. And I remember the first day that I came home with a release, my dad made me go back to the archery shop and return it because he was pissed that I had to shoot a release. Dude, that's legit. Your dad is sounds like a badass. Uh, is he still alive? He is. He is still alive. Um, you know, he's out there hunting every year. He had an elk tag this year, killed like a 360 bull. I, I kind of make a point um, to make sure that he has an elk tag. Yeah. Controlling some things that I can control. Um, we hunt kind of a multi-unit hunt here in Arizona that has some easier garage and we hunt some private property. So that's, I, I try to make sure he has a tag. And my goal is to go with him on his hunts almost every year. If he gets those tags last year was kind of an unusual year because I didn't expect my wife to pull unit nine tag with three points. Um, That's but, the beauty of Arizona, man. Yeah, it is pretty cool. Uh, what release do you use now? I'm shooting a Scott. I shoot uh, an index finger release. I'm shooting a freedom XD. Um, I just like that release. I've never gotten into the back tension. I've shot and shot a few black back tension and thumb releases, but I've never gotten into it for hunting purposes. Um, I shot all my tournaments, you know, when I used to be big into tournaments, probably, seven, eight years ago, I would shoot, you know, an index finger release. And I was pretty competitive, you know, uh, with that setup. I never went to a scope, you know, never shot the scope setups. Most of my competitive 3ds was all geared toward getting prepared for, for, uh, hunting stuff. I, I have enjoyed recently shooting a one, a one to two power lens and some of my hunting setups. Um, it just kind of, changes the dynamic a little bit. I find it kind of, I, I like it, you know, kind of brings those animals in there a little bit more. And, and so, um, 
it just kind of play around with the setups. It just makes it kind of something different, something a little more fun to shoot. Okay. Uh, so besides Arizona, there's other states that you've elk hunted in. Um, you've hunted for guys listening. This guy's just done a lot of big game hunting. Uh, and, and quite honestly, you've put down some really big animals, uh, especially probably from far as I can tell, you're looking for mature animals. You know, your kind of guy's going to probably pass on certain animals to give, given the tag you have, but let's talk about elk tactics specifically. Um, you know, I'm a kind of guy that, you know, I teach these elk shape camps or whatever, and I'm trying to help shorten the learning curve. And I'll be honest, Brian, like, seems like the last couple of years I've been actually, you know, I bring Dirk Durham or Jason Phelps to these camps to teach how to blow on a call and make the sounds with diaphragms and beagle tubes. But, uh, and Joel Turner, these guys are world-class elk callers, but I can make all the sounds. And when I, where I grew up elk hunting was North Idaho, where that's the, it's a vocalization game, man. That's, that's, it is what it is. But if I look back in my North Idaho days, the biggest bulls I ever killed did not involve a single bugle tube at all. It's it's sneaking in, and and that's kind of my style, to be honest. If we if you break it down, I like I like elk doing all the talking on their own and sneaking in. That's my preferred, but I'm not married to it. I'm somewhat of a chameleon based on what's going on. What would you classify your style? Baku e-bikes. These guys provide awesome e-bikes for the mountains. I use them out west, specifically logging roads. They have more torque than any other e-bike competitor. They're built for hunters by hunters. They're an awesome brand to work with out of Salt Lake City. Check them out at Baku.com. BlackOvis.com is where I buy all my hunting gear. I have a discount code that I use myself. It is elk shape. It takes 10% off. Their shipping is fast and free. Their selection is vast and deep. Go to blackovis.com. Check out their full lineup of clothing, footwear, optics, archery, arrows, camping, and all the brands. Spy Point Trail Cameras, the world's number one cellular trail camera brand. Extremely affordable. My favorite is the Link Micro LTE, the smallest Best value camera, dependable, reliable. Go to spypoint.com and check out all their options when it comes to trail cameras and accessories. Kafaru International, my good homeboy, Aaron Snyder and Frank the Tank. These guys are American made, 100%. I typically use the Hoodlum, the 22 Mag or the Striker XL in the backcountry. The frame is second to none. Head over to Kufaru International. Be sure to check out their packs, their frames, tents, shelters, sleeping systems, stoves, lots of accessories, as well as closeouts. You won't be disappointed. Matthews Archery. Introducing the all-new V3X. You have a 29 and 33 option. These guys are out of Sparta, Wisconsin. Head over to MatthewsInc.com. Click the bow builder and start customizing your next awesome bow hunting rig. Crispy USA. Head over to crispyus.com, peruse the vast selection of awesome boots from mountaineering, backpacking, and of course, my favorite, the Colorado GTX for elk hunting. There are also some good options for everyday wear, like my daily driver, the Ativa Mid GTX. And then if you're into stocking like I am, look no further than the Laponia GTX. Check out the core boot lineup. Everything starts from the ground up on your next adventure. Choose wisely. Be sure to check out crispyus.com. Well, I can tell you that like, I don't call unless it's to stop an animal in a window or to bugle to get an animal to be located. I mean, I kind of grew up around kind of Randy Ulmer and some of those guys, you know, and, and, and their style of killing big bulls. And I mean, Randy is not a caller. Randy's just a sheer killer. I mean, he just sneaks in there and gets it done. And so, you know, public land bulls here, a lot of the, you know, calling hoochie mamas, whatever you want to call it, where guys are blowing on the calls all the time. And I mean, occasionally that works. I mean, but honestly, my success has come from, you know, getting up at two in the morning, driving the roads, figuring out where the bulls are going when they're hot, trying to work out in front of those bulls in the dark and then being within that close, you know, within their bedroom when the, when daylight cracks and figuring out a way to get in front of them and cut them off. I mean, that's honestly, the way I would prefer to hunt. Um, I really enjoy areas where you can actually glass and look at some of these bulls um, before you go in and hunt them. I mean, if, if I had a perfect elk hunt, it's a, it's a place where I can get up high and glass elk and then figure out, find an elk that I want to kill and then go in and, and kill that bull. Uh, I would much rather do that than have to sneak in on bulls bugling and then 
you know, get in there and figure, oh, that bull's freaking a five point or this bull's a raghorn. Whereas the particular place that we hunt regularly is that you can get up high. The bull I killed this year, I glassed him up the night before, you know, knew he was going to be right there the next morning, snuck in there and had to weed through a bunch of bulls, but I knew he was there. And so, I mean, that was the bull I was looking for, but I, I don't call at all. I mean, I would tell you that I carry a call of soul for the sole purpose of stopping an elk um, so that I can, you know, get the shot off. But that's, that's really my tactic. And I mean, there are some great callers um, out there. You know, the, some of the ones you mentioned are phenomenal and, and I, I think they're in a class above most. And so, I mean, there are guys that can call elk on public land without a problem. That's not me. And so I just play to my strengths. I think that's awesome. Uh, let's go through a day in the life of Brian elk hunting. So let's say that alarm is really truly set for one thirty two a.m. How do you budget sleeping? Um, and how do you like, okay, you drive roads at 2 a.m. Let's say it hits 3.34 and you've located a pile of bulls or obviously a little bit of a rut frenzy and all the elk are usually on their feet at 2 a.m. Let's be honest, like that elk party at night, man. Um, so is that when you like pull the truck over, study your maps and try to figure out where those elk are going and start slipping in with the wind in your face? Like take us through a day in a life. Well, so, I mean, a lot of it depends on what you have going on. I mean, if you have a bull in an area that you, that you know is big, then yes, you're getting up trying to figure out where the bulls are bugling because generally you'll know where they're going you know, where they're going to, where they're at now and where they're going to end up. So you're trying to beat them there, but you're just trying to figure out kind of what the vocalizations are. One of the unique things about Arizona that a lot of guys don't know is that you can run a spotlight during the season. You just can't have any weapon in the, in the vehicle. You can't have your bow. You can't have your handgun. You can't have anything. So on, on years where you may not have a target bull located, you can run a spotlight all night long. And if you spotlight a bull that you think is good, then you just can figure out where he's going to be and try and dog him and hunt him. It's kind of a unique thing because a lot of guys don't understand that that's actually legal in the state. Um, I don't know how long it will continue to be, but it's been on the books for a long time. And a lot of guys who are effective will use that to, to identify and, and locate a big bull. It's just, you have to understand you can't have your side, you know, your, your pistol in the truck. You can't have anything in the truck that can be used to take an animal when you're doing it. So I've used that technique um, when the bulls are super active at night and not as active during the day to kind of, when you know you've only got that hour window in the morning to be right on them. Um, the other thing is that if you're hunting a new area and you're not sure where the bulls are at driving at night and just listening for the frenzies and then coming back to those frenzies and hunting them, it's really beneficial. But I think, I don't think guys get up early enough to understand that you have to be in front of those elk because as soon as it starts to crack daylight, those internal clocks are going on them. They know where they're trying to get to and your goal should be to get ahead of them. And so it's a learning curve. It takes three or four days to usually figure out a spot, figure out what the elk are doing. And by that time, most guys have their hunts done and your weekend guys are over. You know what I mean? So it's really important to kind of get an idea a sense of what the elk are doing so that you can try and figure out where your ambush points are at, what the, what the wind is doing. So for me, you know, I'll get up two o'clock, start driving roads, um, trying to figure out where, where these elk are going, where these elk are fired up. You know, if I'm hunting a flat unit, then it's important to have bulls that are bugling um, because those bigger bulls are going to kind of, they're going to be drawn to that noise and, and check out those cows. So you want to know kind of where the frenzy's at and then you figure out where the frenzy's at and try and get on them in the dark, you know, get as close as you can in the dark so that when it comes daylight, you can capitalize on those small windows. Um, you know, and the more bulls you have going in an area, the longer the elk are going to be going in the morning. If you get 10 or 15 bulls ripping in an area, those elk will go all day long. They'll be laying in their beds dealing all day long. So, I mean, it just kind of, a lot of it depends on the season and what you're dealing with. Are you dealing with a full moon? Are you dealing with elk that are not very talkative? You know, what's going on and where you're hunting kind of has to dictate how you hunt. But I do think that your general hunters just don't get up early enough and work hard enough to, uh, to kind of capitalize on some of that. Cause it, those are short nights in September in Arizona. I mean, they are short nights when you figure the sun's coming up at four 45, five in the morning. I mean, like it's starting to crack daylight and you got, and you didn't even get to bed till nine, nine 30. So, I mean, it's rolling on quick. Yeah. So, but my goal, get the wind right, get, get ahead of them, 
and try and get a look at what you're, you know, what bull you're chasing and then just, you know, stay with them. And you got to look for those opportunities where they're going to make a mistake. Um, if you get behind them, it doesn't mean you can't catch them. You just kind of got to dog until they slow up and, and kind of recognize the situation. I think the toughest thing about public land hunting is that we all feel the need that this, we may not get another shot at this bull. So we, we rush it or push it sometimes. And sometimes it can be beneficial and sometimes it hurts us. I mean, you know, um, the tough thing about the public land in Arizona is that exact thing. And, you know, the other thing that people think about Arizona is you figure you draw like a nine tag or a 10 tag or a 23 tag where they have, you know, hundred permits and you're thinking, man, like this is going to be a great elk time. It's not going to be that there's not going to be that much pressure. Well, you're wrong because every one of those guys has waited 15 years for that tag. They have four or five buddies that are driving roads, checking cameras, doing all those things. So you got to roll with those punches. You can't get, let that stuff beat you up. I mean, you have to roll with just the circus for lack of a better term. I mean, I tell guys that draw the strip hunts all the time, just understand it's going to be frustrating. There's going to be frustration. You know, you can use radios in Arizona. So guys will have scanners. They're listening on radios. I mean, it, it's just a frustrating it can be a frustrating game, but if you have the time, your chance will come and you just have to be patient and make sure that you stick to your guns on, you know, how you want to act, how you want to be remembered as a hunter and, and, you know, kind of the morals that you were taught because guys lose their cool when you start talking about big animals and, and they just do things that you wouldn't expect. Black Rifle Coffee Company, established in 2014. Veteran-owned, proudly American. They support two-way, they support hunting, and coffee is life if you're just like me. Head over to blackriflecoffee.com, click the coffee club, enter the discount code ELKSHAPE, save 15% and have fresh new flavors of coffee delivered to your doorstep every month. Wilderness Athlete. I met the founder in 2006. I've been in love with this company ever since. They make a tremendous amount of products, not only for in the field, but during the off season when you're training and they got you covered when it comes to supplementing your nutritional intake. Look no further than the Hydrate Recover, whether you want to get tubs or the packets, energy and focus, meal replacements, daily strength protein, brute force pre-workouts, caffeine-free and with stimulant, altitude advantage, joint advantage, omega-3 fish oil, and a bunch more head over to wildernessathlete.com and if you've never bought anything from them before make sure you enter the discount code elkshape30 to save 30 percent off your first purchase vortex optics proud partner since 2010 everything from rifle scopes binoculars range finders vortex wear and backed with their vip warranty unlimited unconditional you break it they'll fix it veteran owned proudly american head over to vortexoptics.com check out their vortex wear fit for everywhere use the discount code elkshape take 20 percent off your scouting everyday wear clothing and thank you vortex for supporting elkshape for over 10 years on x hunt the number one hunting gp app you should join the millions of hunters who trust onyx including myself to find more honey holes discover new access and to be confident and know where you stand use the discount code elkshape to save 20 percent off an elite membership get all 50 states be able to scout from a desktop and your phone everything syncs you can go to 3d mode onyx hunt is the cornerstone to all of my public land hunting success check it out at onyxmaps.com Buck Knives out of Post Falls, Idaho. Buck Knives has a wide variety of blade sharpness, lengths, finish, materials, whether they're serrated, carry systems, handle material, engravable, so many different accessories. Buck Knives has been in the game since 1902. They have a forever warranty and they proudly support Elk Shape. We ask that you check out BuckKnives.com and proudly support American-made knives that help you break down your animal in the backcountry. Numa Outdoors, use the discount code ELKSHAPE20 to save 20% off your clothing. Numa has base layers, headwear, jackets, mid-layers, outer pants, shirts, and vests. Check out the Pursuit Pant, the Renegade, Quarter Zip, Pullover, the Palisade, Puffy, the Alpha Verdict's jacket, and the sleek lineup of base layers, Base Haven, Quarter Zip, Pullover, as well as Base Haven Pants. Man, that is some wisdom right there, folks. Uh, yeah, so Arizona does allow radios, obviously. You can hunt over salt in Arizona. Apparently, you can run a spotlight as long as there's zero weapons in your car at night. Those are all things that it is what it is. They're the rules. If you don't agree with those, then don't do them, but they're definitely legal. And um, 
I'm the kind of guy that kind of will probably do if it's legal, that's cool. And if I don't agree with it, I'm still not going to try to get it removed because we have enough stuff getting taken away from us. Uh, just like I'm not really a rifle hunter, but I don't clown on rifle hunters at all. We need them. So that's cool. And then as far as the water goes, I, I meant to ask you two things about water because we are, you are an Arizona guy. Number one is my buddy guides in New Mexico, Gila, and he's always like, I have my clients sit water in the morning. And I'm always like, I, he's a really good hunter, so I don't argue with him. But if it were me, I love getting up, like you said, super early and killing them ambush style in transition or dogging them to their bedroom and bubble hunting. But it's super nice to have like that afternoon water. It's, it's productive. You're sitting and you're going to get a very controlled shot. When's the best time to sit water in your opinion for elk? And I forgot to mention this, Brian, after all that crap that happened at my water hole, I took a huge sign and wrote hunter in blind put it on the back of my four-wheeler. I didn't block the road. I'm not that, I'm not an asshole, but I parked my four-wheeler about 500 yards from the water hole. It was a dead end road. And I, that actually worked, man. That's, I think that's how I killed that. No one, no, I heard four-wheelers turn around because they came up to my four-wheeler and saw the sign and were super cool people. Thank you, whoever you are. And I ended up killing at that water hole. I wanted to tell you that, but when's the best time to sit water, man? I mean, I think the best time to sit water by far is in the evening. I mean, I don't think there's any comparison. I do think, you know, I've killed bulls on water in the morning, you know, and it, it comes down to kind of the scenario too is, you know, in New Mexico, a lot of those guys are guiding on private land. I don't know. You're guys in the Gila, so it's not private land, but if you've oh, got a bull in there. He's on private and they have the water. Yeah. So, I mean, if you have private and you have the water, I think a lot of the guys will sit water because it doesn't disturb the elk. You're not pushing them out of their patterns. Fact. And, you know, from a guide's perspective, like I said, it's a controlled environment. You know, guys in New Mexico, guides in New Mexico, guides in Arizona, but especially New Mexico, most guys will go there to get their first elk. And so you're getting a whole different litany of talent levels. You know, you get your Midwest bow hunter who's used to shooting a whitetail at 20 yards and you tell him he's got to shoot 45 yards and he's like, holy smokes, like, and to you and me, 45 yards, I'll take a 45 yard shot on any animal any day of the week because that's, that's a chip shot. But I mean, it's just a different dynamic. I mean, I, I think that, you know, based on your circumstances, what you have going on, how dry it is, you know, s- sometimes the problem is you can't get to the water in the dark without the elk being there in the morning exactly. because they're not, sometimes they're around and you don't want to spook them out of there. So it just depends on the circumstances. Um, but I've done both, but I think that by far, the most effective is to sit in the evening, in my opinion. What do you do when, um, so this happened to me, one of the nights I sat water, and this was obviously a late season Arizona archery. I had so many elk come in and get water, and then it got dark on me. And what I did was I decided to just stay in the blind and wait for over an hour for them to like get all their water and to finally leave. And I remember it took forever, but would you, would you get out of your blind if elk are there and it's too late to shoot, or would you just stay put? I would always stay put. I mean, there's no reason to get out and booger those elk. I mean, let them get a hundred yards away and then walk out of there. Um, you know, it, it just depends on the circumstances, you know, I've had times this year where my wife had elk in the blind and I was, you know, a quarter mile away, 500 yards away. And all I would do, you know, if they'd been in there for 30 minutes after dark, I just start the truck where I was at and then they would slowly move off because they're used to hearing the trucks and I could go in there and get them. But I mean, I don't, you know, I think you should definitely, definitely do everything you can to avoid spooking anything. Um, so if that means staying in a blind longer, longer than, I mean, you got to do that. I mean, some people are just flat, not comfortable doing that. So, I mean, you have to play to your, what your comfort level is, but I, I would definitely not get out of there elk at the water. Are you going to the Western hunting expo? I'm not going to go this year. Um, we were going to go this year, but we have a lot of things going on. I, I do like that expo. It's a good time. And it, it'll be good. To, it would be good to see everybody there, but we've got some early spring trips planned. I've got five Turkey hunts or five Turkey tags this year. So I got a lot of things going on. Um, so I'm not going to go this year. Is Turkey hunting just like elk hunting? Yes. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so except for the, the, so do you have like the Turkey, 
I've met a lot of elk hunters that are diehard turkey hunters. I think I'm talking to one. So, uh, are you literally going like on a five state turkey hunt, trying to get all? You know, what What's your turkey plans? So what I do is I hunt the San Carlos Indian Reservation in Arizona. I'll have two tags on that. I have two tags on the White Mountain Apache Indian Reservation, and those hunts basically overlap. And I do it that way. So I'll go hunt the San Carlos for three days. I'll drive strikes to the White Mountain Apache and hunt the White Mountain Apache for four days. And then I will come back and usually take one or two youth hunters on the state land hunt. So I can take a week off of work and it gives me 10 day window where I'll just go and do all those hunts. And I mean, the best part about turkey hunting, man, unlike elk hunting is it takes one hand to pick up a turkey and walk back to the truck. So, and I mean, hunting, being able to hunt those reservations, you, you know, coolest thing about hunting, the white mountain is that we stay in the same lodge as the elk hunters at the Maverick, um, Maverick camp. And so all the bulls that were killed the year before are on a whiteboard on the deck of the, of the cook hall. And so like, you get to look at all the bulls that were killed, see all the n- names of who killed them. And so that's just kind of a fun, uh, a fun deal. And I mean, it's an incredible place to Turkey hunt, just like elk hunt. Man, I only picked up one shed this year in Arizona when I was elk hunting and I cover some ground. I know that might be hard to believe, but I cover some ground on foot. Uh, y'all are just, is it just y'all are just crazy shed hunters in Arizona? They just get scooped up. I think it was a little bit of a unique, uh, a, been a bit of a unique year. I mean, I, I talked, I was on the late rifle hunt and we didn't do Jack for finding elk that we normally do in place that we normally do. And I talked to some guys on the late archery hunt that you had. And I mean, some of the elk were still balled up with cows. Some of them were still bugling a little bit, doing some yes. goofy things. And uh, so it just depends on the year um, and where things are. I do. I will tell you that like a lot of guys really get in to the shed hunting, um, the shed hunting thing. It's not my deal, um, but it all depends on where you're at too. Um, but it's interesting because it just depends on where you're out running around and, and, and where you find the sheds. I mean, I, I see, we, we usually find five or six on the late rifle bull hunt. Cause we're obviously glass in the deep nasty can the same places you're hunting on the archery hunt. Yeah. Um, so, but this year for us, it, we, it was the same. We found some, we picked up a couple of different sheds that were, you know, pretty solid sheds, but nothing crazy. Um, but it just depends. I mean, you get one person who gets in there and hits a spot and they come back to it. You know, those elk tend to move a little bit too. Yeah, November seventeenth. I had I heard thirteen bugles. Couldn't believe that's it. crazy. Couldn't believe it. Um, if I had a bugle tube, I would have definitely closed the deal on one bull. I, I had a cow call, so I did cow call him in. We were in a funky, windy canyon that just did weird stuff. It was we were kind of doomed before it started. I knew the wind was funky, but we ended up get calling him in pretty good with just a cow call. But I couldn't believe how hot he was. And two other bulls bugled. Um, one was a broke off six, probably three forty with a broke off, and he was palmated. He just bugled from his bed. He wasn't even interested. Um, but then another bull was pushing four cows, bugling, and then this bull was super hot. And I couldn't believe that. Uh do you think that's gonna be the new normal? Do you think the the, the rut is starting to go on a little bit later each year, or do you think things are fine? No, I don't think it's gonna I mean, I, I don't think it'll be the new normal. I think things will kind of get back to the way they're supposed to be. It just depends on the weather and the moisture and how things work out. Um, you know, I, I do think that pressure affects some of these elk and the way they rut, you know what I mean? Cause if you can go into a, you can go into a unit, you know, three, four days before the hunt starts and elk kind of being normal. And then the day before the hunt starts, when everybody rolls in, you know, you, you see a considerable change. And I mean, I, I feel like guys are devoting more time to elk hunting, you know, so before you'd have a guy draw an elk tag and they would only hunt Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and go home and you'd have kind of the place to yourself. I just, you don't see it quite as much anymore. I mean, you do see it in certain units, but in the better units where guys have waited years to have a tag, they're, they're just finding a way to make it happen. You know, they're finding a way to, to uh, stick around longer and, and capitalize on those opportunities because opportunities are hard to come by. No doubt. Well, what's your 2022 crystal ball? Um, do you have points in other States? What, what are you hoping to draw or, or go and do besides the Turkey deal? Uh, so I, I did my Arizona stuff last week. Um, and I'm not putting in for anything that's a guarantee. I, I put in for some better units during the rut hunts. Um, we'll see what happens. My, my dad should have another Arizona tag. So I will definitely devote a week to hunting with him on that tag. And then I don't have anything that's specific. Um, I can cash in some points in some States, 
but I'm not looking to do it right now. I might cash in some antelope points in Wyoming because my dad's getting up there and uh, he has the same amount of points, but I, you know, I don't have anything dead set yet. Um, I know my wife, my wife and I both have a bunch of Iowa points and she really enjoys sitting. So we may not cash in Iowa this year. We may look to do it next year, but you know, I'm just kind of in limbo right now, just kind of paying attention to different things. I haven't really set a roadmap for anything. I know I'll be going elk hunting with my dad, you know, and, and then if anybody else that I put in gets a tag, then obviously I have some other things to go on with that, but I know I'll be going with my dad for sure. So, I mean, I'll get to experience the Arizona elk hunt one way or the other. Okay. So for people listening, um, obviously Arizona's got those reservation tags that, uh, I'm not even sure if you can just call them up and be like, Hey, I want to buy one. Probably you got to know somebody, but like, what's the, what's the price point for a, a San Carlos, uh, a white Apache rut elk tag? Hey, white Apache elk tags are 19 grand with like a three or $5,000 kill fee. And it might be a little higher, but it's right there. Total right there at that $25,000 mark. And then uh, most of the reservations have a 375 or better, like extended fee. If you kill a bull at Boone and Crockett, 375 or better, and they charge you a little more. The San Carlos is pushing 30,000 now. Um, it is, I think it's at 30,000 for sure. They kill some big bulls. But San Carlos has some unique draw opportunities in like what's called a melee gap unit. Um, it's not known for to be a great unit, but they have some big, they have some pretty good bulls there. Um, and that hunts 7,500 bucks. It's a draw type deal, but it's fairly reasonable, um, to draw. And I would tell you, I mean, when you factor in a New Mexico hunt, if you're going to go with an outfitter on a guaranteed landowner tag, you're spending 7,500 bucks and you're probably hunting 300 inch bulls. Um, you may kill better bulls, but they, they run a lot of hunters through that stuff. Uh, that San Carlos tag is not a bad option to, to get yourself on a, a solid, 340 type bull 330 to 340 type bull it's just not uh, it's not the crazy frenzy that arizona can be but it's definitely definitely an option um most of those hunts have wait lists uh for sure i mean i think you might be able to get a tag on the white mountain apache on the out of the sunrise camp but most of those tags have wait lists and i you can shoot a, a management bull on the white mountain apache it, i think it's 7500 bucks it once i think it once was five grand, but I think it's 7,500 bucks now, but they have cow hunts on the white mountain Apache, $400. It's a spike or a cow hunt raghorn tags are 750 bucks. Um, fun hunts, phenomenal bugling, phenomenal rut action. Um, get to be on the reservation. It's super cool place to be with lots of elk. Um, you just can't shoot the big bulls. Dude, you're a wealth of knowledge. I appreciate you. Um, you are on Instagram. You do have Facebook. Um, you're fairly active on Instagram. What is your Instagram handle? It's just B Rimza. So it's my first initial, my last name. Okay. And I always say separations in the preparation on my podcast, but what do you think, what part of your, this is my last question. What part of your preparation separates you? I try to control every variable that's controllable from, you know, my food prep, my physical fitness to my bow. So anything that I can control, I try to control and I will go a little bit above and beyond to make sure that I'm comfortable on long hunts, meaning just whether it be, I have a good base camp trailer with, where I can take a shower in Arizona because the more comfortable you are, the more patient you are and the longer you can go. Cause most of these hunts are a mental grind. Uh, especially when you start passing that five to seven day mark, most guys can't do it. Um, you know, I've taken hunters, helped hunters out before who I take up on an elk hunt and we're gone for five days. And it's the first time that they've been away from their wife and their kids for more than a day. And, and you know, it's just a different dynamic. I mean, it, thank God my wife allows me to do it. And I'm sure your wife allows you to do it too, because I mean, when my kids are grown, your kids are still a little bit younger, but when they're younger and you're out and your wife calls you and she's pulling her hair out, you know, you just got to try to make sure to take care of all those variables. And those variables include your family, you know, on my earlier hunts, when my wife was, uh, you know, taking care of the kids and they were younger, I would, especially on long hunts, I would schedule like flower deliveries, like every five days to try and, you know, make sure that those things are good. My wife can hear me right now. And I'm sure she's saying, you haven't done that in years. I probably need to get back on that track. Yeah. Yeah. But just trying to make sure they're taken care of. I mean, because they, if, if home life is taken care of and you don't have to worry about that stuff, 
it also makes it a lot easier in the field when you know that your wife's got things handled and you're not worrying about what's going on at home. Dude, that's wisdom. Hunt your best. Your stuff at home's got to be dialed, guys. Oh, uh, thanks for getting on here, Brian. I hope to meet you actually in real life. Um, I've enjoyed talking to you twice now in the last week. If you guys haven't, um, if you're not a member of the Elk Collective, we do have that. And Brian's on there breaking down Arizona, and he does one of the best jobs I've ever heard. Guy's a wizard when it comes to numbers. Check him out on Instagram, Separations in the Preparation. We will catch you all on the next one. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, We are just getting back from the second Elk Shape Camp 2022 from Utah. That was a great experience. All we have left is Oregon in March and Texas. You can still get into one of those camps, but I mean, we only have a couple spots left at each. Pretty excited about the Oregon one coming up. Looking forward to hanging out with Wayne Endicott and his entire staff uh, in Oregon. Should be a good bunch. We have solid group there. Jason Phelps is coming to this one. Um, I might be bringing MFJJ, my archery coach, but Endicott will be there. Joel Turner. It's going to be exciting camp. These are a lot of fun. If you need more information, go to elkshape.com. Blackovis.com discount code elkshape takes 10% off. I told you I would tell you about the Elk Collective. Uh, That is a digital e-course for elk hunting, covering everything from how to get elk tags in your hand to how to e-scout and then how to find elk, kill elk with a bunch of different subject matter experts coming on explaining their tactics which is key i think it's better to learn from many than one and have multiple tools in your bag you guys want to check out the elk collective you can enter the discount all one word elk shape podcast that'll save you some bones and then get to studying uh, there's almost 200 videos to digest. You probably won't get through them all. And we add more and more content. Check that out. It's a great resource. And if you just chip away every day a little bit, you'll you'll learn more and more and more. And it's not just for, for newbie elk hunters. We're talking seasoned vets are going to gain knowledge just when you listen to multiple subject matter experts. Vortex Wear, discount code Elkshape takes 20% off. If you need a Baku e-bike, the discount code is Elkshape takes 300 bucks off. On X Hunt, discount code is Elkshape takes 20% off, then you'll get access to Top Rut, which you'll need some of those KLM, KMZ files for your Google Earth e-scouting. If what I said you had no idea, you need to take Mark Lipisay's e-scouting course. I have a discount code, it's Elkshape, it takes a few bucks off as well. Numa Outdoors, discount code Elkshape20 takes 20% off. And Black Rifle Coffee Company, discount code Elkshape, 15% off. You guys have a lot of choices when it comes to podcasts. Thanks for choosing ours. Remember, separate yourself from the competition. That's right. Separation is in the preparation. Do something every day in the name of better elk hunting. We'll catch you on the next one.